Hello, welcome, good evening. My name is Lamina Abdul Malik, Nobel Peace Prize laureate with IEM 2005, founder of 100 Ideas Cafe, a crowdsourcing platform across health, environment, and renewables to source ideas to impact the world. Our target is to impact the world for at least the next 1 billion people that will be joining us in 10 years. I'm also fascinated by coffee. I call myself a coffee premier and also a futurist. I'm so happy to be joining you on your podcast, Jonathan, The Inspiring Leadership. Over to you, Jonathan. Well, thank you, Lamin. And it's really exciting to have somebody who's won a Nobel Peace Prize back in 2005 with the Atomic uh, International Atomic Energy Agency. You and the team won that. Congratulations on that. And Thanks also, so I, I love that sort of who wants to be a billionaire, uh, that you want to influence, you know, uh, take the ideas of a billion people and make, make use of it. Uh, and I love the way it's inflated. You used to be a millionaire. Now it's a billion. You go for a billion. They're yes. big, big ideas. But <laughs> it's been really lovely meeting you. And, and we were so introduced much. kindly by uh, Stephen Foster, who's been on the podcast as well, uh, who got us both on one golden nugget. And uh, he's got us in his latest book again, which well done, Stephen, with his books. Um, yeah. But you've had a fascinating life. And, and as people listen to this, they want to know, what is it that I can draw from Lamine and his experiences? What sort of tips can I take away that's useful for me in my busy life as I listen to this podcast? So let's, let's begin a bit with the, I'm really interested in this idea of people's life maps that you yeah. were given by your parents, a map of, here you are, I mean, this is our faith, this is what we believe in, this is where we live, this is what you can do. And you took that map, but you've not accepted it as it was given. You've added to it and you've <laughs> changed it. And you know, you've added motorways across the middle of it. You, you've shaped it so much. Yes, it was foundational, but tell us a bit about your life map and in about perhaps 10 minutes, you know, some of the things that shaped you, people who shaped you into the leader you are today with a Nobel Peace Prize. Thanks a lot, Jonathan. So I'll probably go back to starting with my grandfather. Um, he was half English, half Scottish. And when he was about 21 years old, he actually just got onto a ship in London. And when he got to Africa, Nigeria to be exact, he basically got off the ship. And he goes, oh, I'm just gonna settle here. Fast forward, he met my grandmother. My mum is obviously, his, she's the eldest daughter from that family. So in terms of that sense of adventure, I think it's been in my DNA. I also found out very recently that my grandfather on my father's side actually used to have a coffee farm. As mentioned to you, I'm actually quite passionate about coffee. So that sense of adventure and also coffee, I think are kind of things that perhaps I was not even aware from them when I was born, or even when I was in a teenager, but I think they've kind of come back to haunt me in a pleasant way where I am at the moment. So I actually grew up in Nigeria till I was about 12, and that sense of adventure and exploring were very inherent in who I was. So I always tell the story, like, you know, when I was five years old, pushed into, into primary school in, in Lagos, and I basically spent the first year just drawing comics, um, drawing Spider-Man, Hulk, and sometimes I was even selling those comics to my friends. So actually, in Nigeria back then, the education was very strict. At the end of each year, we had an exam, and I actually failed my first year of primary school because I didn't care what one plus one was or two times two was. I just wanted to spend the whole time in that one year just drawing. Um, so that, in terms of that aspect of like, you know, being creative and after moving from comics, I started drawing aeroplanes. So that adventure of, you know, wanting to fly to different parts of the world. And I remember my mom actually used to work for Sabina, which is actually the, the Belgian, well, back then was the Belgian national airline. And she got these fantastic tickets deals. So by the time I was 10 years old, I'd already traveled to about 12 or 13 countries. I remember I used to 
kind of boast with my classmates saying, oh, I've been to 12 countries, you know, different parts of the world. So that sense of that adventure was already born in me. And in fact, initially I just wanted to be a pilot. I thought, wow, this would be the best career. Get onto a plane, travel the world and get paid for it. Um, but obviously when I got to school, we had to study, study physics and I was more into art and physics. So that career thing went a bit south. I wanted to be a fashion designer. I started drawing, you know, fashion designs that I thought, that I started doing A-levels. And I was like, well, there's no art of fashion design at A-levels. So it was impossible for me to, to do art. So in the end, my final year um, at school, I decided to do A-level economics. And that's what I actually enjoyed. I thought oh, it's really interesting. I mean, from, it seemed very simplistic at that time, I have to confess, where, you know, if you just change the interest rates, a little bit, you can, you know, one million people can get employed. I thought, well, that's fantastic. I can actually help people get jobs. I can actually, you know, just correct the economy and people will not be unemployed. But of course, the reality is very different from that. So we, we went to university, studied economics at University of Leicester for three years. And I remember, um, I'll come to this later on. I remember my last year, I mean, my tutor called me and said, oh, let me, what would you like to do? And I thought, oh, actually, I'd like to work for the World Bank of the UN because I actually want to help people. And he said to me, you have to be really smart to do a job like that. I can't see you doing that. And oh. I thought, okay, that's your opinion. It doesn't matter. <laughs> so I went on to do an MBA. And after the MBA, I actually joined the British government. Back then, it was called the Overseas Development, Overseas Development um, Administration. which became DFID, which was recently disbanded by the current UK government, sadly. So DFID was basically the interface where the UK was basically interacting with the world from an international development perspective. I actually love that um, job because, you know, we were working on trade, working in poverty. And from that, from then on, I actually went to the UN um, based in Vienna, where I was working on something completely different um, for the International Atomic Energy Agency. I was working on the development side, which is basically summarized as using nuclear science and technology to address development goals. So um, one of the, my biggest projects, one of my things that I'm really proud of was actually helped um, Zambia develop their first cancer hospital, which to date treats about 1,500 cancer patients annually. So back then before, if you had cancer, you, you died because there was no treatment facility and it was too expensive to send anybody about, unless you were a multimillionaire in Zambia, you could go to obviously to the US or the UK to get treated. Um, of course, when I was there in 2005, because our organization was trying to stop the, the second Iraq war, we actually got awarded the Nobel Peace Prize um, so with my colleagues and myself. So one of the things I learned from that is basically, you know, even go back to my tutor university saying, you have to be really smart to work for the UN or the World Bank. That's not gonna happen to me. I think if people just put those things in your path and really believe you can do it, just start that journey because you never know what will happen. I never knew I was gonna, you know, be in an organization like that or even be awarded that prize with a very prestigious prize. But, you know, just start that path, you never know what will happen. And I think success kind of sometimes finds you in a way. Yeah, that's a, that's a lovely story. And in your team at the International Atomic Energy Agency, how many of you got the, jointly got this prize of the Nobel Peace Prize? Yeah, so I have to, I have to give deference to the, the story back then was they were actually going to award it to the DG, the head of the IAEA. And he said, no, it's not my success, it's the success of my colleagues. Oh, so, he actually, so the Nobel Committee actually awarded it to the employees at the IAEA. Because he said, it's not me that made a success, not me that used the science and technology to, to address development goals, or for example, to stop the, the, the what well, we tried to stop the Iraq war, it didn't happen. So he actually said, no, that should be awarded. And I remember when, when I remember that day when it was awarded, he actually called a, a staff meeting of everybody in the organization into a staff room and said, 
this is what's happened. I'm really proud wow. of this book. How many, and, how many are the of you who can claim the credit for that? Well, I'll I'll say I say I say back then there was probably about about two maybe about two thousand of us probably. Wow, that's fantastic! Yeah, yeah. yeah that's a yeah. great that's a great award to to have between the two. Yeah, thousand. definitely, and it was only for people, and it was if it was even time. I think you had to work in the IA for between January and September two thousand and five. If you if you if you came December two thousand and four, or you came after that, you didn't get awards. So it was for a specific period because it was the the Nobel Committee awards. For a specific period and yeah. for a specific amount of people, yeah. So that very was, good, very yeah. good. And yeah. and behind you is not a it's not a an image. It actually is real life. You're in Dubai as nighttime is falling, uh, yes, in, the, in the UAE. It's a it's a really vibrant place. How long have you lived there now? I I moved here during um, the pandemic. Actually, in 2020, I just finished my job at the at the IAEA in late 2019. Um, and I was planning to think, where can I go? Where can I go to basically, be, in economics, we use this terminology, an enabling environment. And I thought, should I stay in Europe? But if I was going to stay in Europe, I'd definitely go back to England. Or should I try, try somewhere else in the world as I'm still a little bit younger? Yeah. And my kids have kind of flown the nest. Our son's about to start university. Our daughter's already in university. So we didn't have that kind of like to think about, oh, where would our kids go to school? What's the environment going to be like? It was just between my wife and myself. And we've been to Dubai a few times. I actually like the environment. I thought, oh, you know what? Why not? And some of my friends were like, why are you moving the pandemic? And I said, well, why not? <laughs> you know, what, what are I waiting Good call. For? That was a good call. And, and, and yeah. if you were just three of the pros and three of the cons, as someone who normally lives in the UK, but has moved to, to Dubai, what do you find three of the, the benefits and three of the, the disadvantages of, of uh, having lived out there as an expat? I mean, I think obviously the disadvantage, I'll start with that first. Obviously, you've got family there, so you kind of miss them. That's that's normal. That's normal. And also, also you're quite familiar with the culture. So I'm very, obviously, I'm very familiar with, with British culture. I've lived there since I was 13 years old. Um, so I miss that. And also, I'm, I'm quite fascinated by food and drink. And I actually think London's one of the best places to eat and drink coffee <laughs> um so this is the kind of things that i miss whenever i go back to london at least once a year i basically just go out the whole day either going shopping or looking for a new cafe or trying to find really good food even from the supermarkets i love the stuff that's in the supermarket i go crazy doesn't help my carbon footprint i have to confess because i usually bring back like you know really silly simple things like whether it's harrod sourdough bread for example or mm. you know harrod's strawberry jam just things that you kind of miss from there Mm. Moving on to the advantages, obviously, what, what's, what I've experienced as I've been here is that it's, it's very vibrant, there's a lot of energy, there's a very can-do approach in this part of the world. Um, if there's the latest technology, and I always tell everybody, all the technology is not, it's, nothing's been invented here per se, they've actually been invented in the US or in America or in Europe. Um, and, but, you know, there's a, lot, there's a bit of bureaucracy when you're trying to implement new technology, whereas here, they're like, if it's the best, if it's the fastest, what's the price? Let's do it. So I like that kind of energy. And I also like the energy. Obviously, I'm closer to Asia. And I find I, it's, a, it's a culture that I haven't really embraced yet. And I think it's a part of, what I love is I'm also learning new cultures then to interact with different types of people, which I, I actually love. Mm -hmm. and, so, and it's a fast and growing city. So you're part of that energy, that can-do approach. I'm learning new things and new different cultures. So those are the kind of pros that I would say. That is great. And, and it brings out all the, the positives of, of a global economy. Uh, yeah. And there's been the, the, the sort of naysayers who go, you know, globalization is dead because everybody's now trying to have, you know, their 
supply chains as short as possible and not rely on other places. And uh, if you read that um, Ray Dalio's book uh, about the new world order, the changing yeah. new world, which is fascinating, which is this idea that, you know, America will essentially get eclipsed as China comes up and that becomes a reserve currency, not the American reserve yeah. currency in the greenback and that, that there will be war between them over Taiwan at some stage in the next 10 years. Um, you know, you can easily sort of think, oh, goodness, let's retrench into our uh, little islands. And there's the other book, yeah. The Age of the Strongman by Gideon Rackman from The Economist, which is all yeah. about uh, Dogen, Xi Jinping, um, uh, Orban. Uh, you could even talk about Boris and Trump and things who are all very populist, nationalistic and 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 withdrawing and being critical of globalization. But I still think globalization is the way forward. We just yeah. we're just going to have to be kinder with each other and collaborate more. But people aren't so quick on that. What's your thoughts? Yeah, I think there's for me. I think there's two aspects of globalization. There's the political aspect and there's the social and economic aspect. I think the part of you know we're all here. I think there's like I don't know almost eight billion of us now. I'm not sure. Yep. Yeah. Uh, eight billion. Yeah. I think, and I think the beauty of of our creation of humanity is that. We're just, we're all so rich in our culture and we should try our best to understand each other. Sometimes the friction comes where we try to say, oh no, my culture is superior to your culture or this concept of monoculture. You know, you're backward because you're doing it that way. But I think, no, we should say, no, how do you do it in your culture? How, what's your understanding? What's your perspective? Perhaps I can learn something from that or even appreciate that. It might not be applicable in your own culture. For example, if you look at things like you know, diseases like you know, cancer raising very fast in developing in the developing world, like in the global south. The reason is because they're trying to imitate Western lives or Western cultures, and they're not they, the society and the food is not designed for that. So it's like fine, you might enjoy burgers and pizza. Perhaps when you go to Europe, you can have that, or should you be eating that on a, on a, on a daily basis in your country? Perhaps not. You can appreciate different cultures. And I think the clash comes when we look at the politics of it, where let's say, no, my politics is, is superior to your politics. So I think that I am right and you're wrong. And that, that causes tension. And then you see people either invading other countries to say, we know what's better for you. You don't know what's better for you. And that kind of that arrogance or hubris, I think that's where tension is going to come. Because I don't, I, don't, I don't, most human beings don't like being told what to do, even if they know that it's right for them. There's a, there's a way of saying, you know, you know speaking to people and listening to them if I get okay have you thought about doing it this way for example or in our culture we do it this way perhaps we can learn from each other perhaps we can take something from your culture we can take it from our culture we can understand and I think that's the beauty of the concept of diversity and equality mm. uh, whether it's male female black white yellow or whatever all that culture I think we're all one and just trying to understand each other and say okay yeah how can we do this how can we move together as one moving towards better human race i i think that's a lovely a lovely way of, of thinking about it and also i think one of the things which helps us as as we actually get more information and more knowledge about certain things so you know the, one of the greatest threats to the planet is the, the the damage we've done to the environment my only saving hope is that perhaps some of our technology might be able to save us before it's too late before we destroy our own environment and all the animals in it but the other thing which I'm finding so very interesting, and you with your love of coffee, is the microbiome and our understanding of the body and the kind of food we should be eating and the supplements we should be having and how 
the standard American diet, SAD, as they call it, is is what was thought as the, as the great thing to have, you know, with the burgers and the chips and the McDonald's and the, and the Coke and sugar drinks like that. But actually now we're finding those are terribly bad for us. And the more you give them to other parts of the globe, they all become obese. And surprise, yeah. surprise, everything that was the orthodoxy is now actually found to be wrong. And even your good love of coffee. Coffee is that, that one that's always argued over. But I actually have one cup of black coffee first thing in the morning, which is very good for the microbiome. But yeah. later on in the day, I don't have have more coffee. I just for me, just one a day is my is my love, the start of the day. Um, yeah. But but it is interesting what we start to learn about and what we find to be good once we actually find the facts. But let's go from that, from the, the big global. Let's go down to back to you as a person, because yeah. you, you're a fascinating guy. In your experiences that you've had around the world and all that travel, all the different jobs you've had and the Ideas Cafe and you're trying to get sort of best ideas from people. What's been a proudest moment for you, apart from uh, being part of the, the gang, that the, the team that got the, the Nobel Peace Prize? But uh, what's been another proudest moment for you and perhaps a darkest moment? And what did you learn from them as a leader that others might find helpful to, to learn from your learning? Yeah, I think actually I, I, I'm going to just use one example. So I think um, back in 2009, after my first stint at the IAEA, I, I was very passionate about coffee and I thought I want to have a cafe somewhere in the world. I thought about going to London, but it was just the beginning of the financial crisis. So I decided actually to move my family and myself to Cape Town to open up wow. a cafe. So moving to a city where we practically didn't know anybody. I just loved going to Cape Town when I was traveling. And I thought it was the most European city in Africa that my family would be able to handle the adjustment of moving to a completely different continent. So of course, very naive, you know, I had a, I had a very European mentality where when I went into this kind of environment, like basically if I serve the best coffee, everybody's gonna come. I, I, had, I studied a little bit of how the cafe scene was working in, in London and that kind of tends to be the norm in a way. What I call developed market tastes a little bit different from developing countries. What, Moving to Cape Town, it was very cliquey. And even though people will come to my cafe and sometimes say to me, oh, your coffee is actually one of the best, but I've never seen them come back again because their friends had cafes. So in terms of the proudest moment, it was basically that, that sense of, you know, gusto, bravado, say, we're moving to Cape Town and we'll open up a cafe. A lot of my friends were like envious of me saying, how, how did you convince your wife to go with you <laughs> to, mm. to move to a different part of the world? And you don't know anybody and you don't even know how you're going to earn any money in the next month. So I think that gusto and basically, you know, that feeling of just going out and doing something you really, you're really passionate about. I have, I've, I've learned so much things from that, even though I had my family for three years that have been with me for years. And I can still talk about that experience. And in fact, the cafe, uh, university in Morocco actually approached me to do an online course for them based on my lessons from that, which I've already captured actually in a course wow. that I want to roll out. But fast forward to that. So even though, you know, you know, my, my wife convinced me to tell everybody in, in Cape Town that I actually had a Nobel Peace Prize um, award. And I said, no, I don't want to tell anybody about that. I just want people to come have great coffee and a great cheesecake. So she convinced me and I said, okay, fine. So our next selling point was the only cafe in the world owned and run by a Nobel Peace Prize laureate. So we got a lot of media attention. A famous food writer came to, to my cafe and said, this is the best cheesecake in the world, in the best cheesecake in Cape Town, increased the price. And I was sold out of cheesecake every day. But despite all that media attention, 
I never made any money. So right. of course, after about two and a half years, completely broke. When I mean broke, I meant there was a time where we only had $50 in the bank account and it was two weeks to pay in the rent. And I had one of my dream cars back then was actually a BMW 3 Series sports version. And my wife is really nervous. She goes, what's going to happen? I said, don't worry. I really believe sincerely that God is not going to put our kids and ourselves on the streets in a foreign country. So she went to church that next Sunday because my wife's Christian. And she saw one of her friends, oh, I'm, my wife's selling his car. Uh, sorry, my husband's selling his car. And he said, what car is he selling? He said, oh, it's, it's a BMW 3 Series. And he goes, that's my dream car. Can I come and test drive it? So he comes the next day and he says, can I test drive the car? After five minutes, he says to me, this is, I, I'm going to buy the car. How much do you want for it? And I'm like, how much do I want for it? <laughs> so I was like, so I, mean, I didn't, I don't, don't, no, I didn't cheat him. I just asked BMW, what's the reference price? How, what would be the highest price I could charge for this car? I said, I gave him the price. He goes, done. Wow. He bought the car, he bought the car immediately. And within, within a week, he transferred the money. So, you know, from being one of the proudest moments, going basically to one of the darkest moments, I didn't know yeah. what are we going to do just with $50 in the bank account. I've got my wife and two kids, school fees to pay, rent to pay. And I think what I learned from that was that concept of res resilience, of just mm. trusting the path that you're on and just, and just going ahead and thinking it's going to be all right and really believe in it and, li and, li and live in it as well. People sometimes say things, we actually have to experience it. I actually really believe it in your heart. That's my yeah. experience. No, it's, it's, it's a lovely story. I absolutely, you are a great raconteur, a storyteller. <laughs> and so tell us another story. So not a, perhaps a story, but it, for those who are listening, you've got children aged about 16. Looking back, back to the future, Lamine travels back, meets your 16 year old self. What advice would you give? Don't do this, but do focus on that. What, what bit of wisdom would you give after all your experiences and to get being broke to being uh, uh soluble again what, what what advice would you give i really think that people should i, I believe everybody has some, something they're really passionate about but sometimes you kind of like drown that out so if i was 16 years old i was really into art i actually wanted to be a fashion designer i wanted to be a pilot but i thought no those are too difficult i'm just going to do something completely different i did economics but however i don't regret that because i don't regret anything in life so my advice to my 16 year old would be like, if you're really passionate about fashion or you want to be a pilot, try and explore other paths that can help you get there. Don't put blocks in your, in your path. So what I found out after many years is that I could actually become a commercial pilot. I just had to save money and, and study for 700 hours and I could actually become a commercial pilot. I didn't have to go through university and go through a technical school. I found out afterwards, probably I didn't search hard enough if I wanted to be a fashion designer, perhaps I could have just started doing like learning how to card or be an apprentice at a, at a place like that. So sometimes we tend to put blocks. So any 16-year-old, I think you're really passionate about something. You definitely have to put work into it. I don't believe in this, that anything comes for free or come easy. Or if you're a musician, I don't have to, do, I don't have to study music. No, I don't, I don't believe in that. If you're really passionate about it, focus on it, hone on it, and develop the skills that you're lacking in. And I think, and, then, and, and go for it. Just, just go for it, I think. Yeah, great, great wisdom. And then let's go around the Inspire Leadership Compass, which the, the research that my wife Lee and I did over the last 20 or 30 years about what makes high performing leaders like yourself, inspiring leaders. Um, we begin with the moral quotient, which is what I call following your true north, being yeah. totally authentic to yourself and the values you have. What When you've come unstuck at times and you've lost, you've not followed your true north and you've had to come back onto it, 
What's your learning about forgetting what your values and your principles were and bringing yourself back on? We could all state great values, but what did you do to get back on track when you lost your way? Yeah, I think it all comes from a sense of self. Um, I think if you, sometimes people talk about self-discipline. No one likes the word discipline, but I think it's more to do with self-awareness. My experience has been that if you kind of try and hold yourself to certain states, certain values, definitely we're, we're human. We're definitely not perfect. You will fall. But what my experience is that whenever we've fallen, the idea is not to beat yourself up about it. Say, okay, this is what happened. Don't overanalyze it. How can I get back on track? Mm. Don't beat yourself and say, oh, I'm hopeless. Oh, I'm useless. Why did I do that? Nothing's, nothing good is going to come out of me. That's just complete defeatist. It's not going to get anybody anywhere. It's okay. I don't know how I got to the stage. I've fallen here. Let me, how can I put myself back on track? And then take my, minor steps. So even if you look at, okay, I've fallen from this, perhaps I was forced to do a particular thing I did not like. Say, so, okay, how can I get back onto that path by doing little small things? Whether it's like even the next day you see a colleague that you go into an argument and just say, good morning, how's your day? Just start, and then that, that, you get that reciprocal coming back to you. That's kind of my, what I've learned like in a nutshell. I, I wish our politicians had listened to that, and I wish <laughs> they had the humility to admit when they are wrong and they've drifted off the path, and to apologize, publicly to apologize, and then we'd find them much more human and much more believable and more worthy of our trust because the, the trust index, the Edelman trust index is at its lowest level that it's yeah. been in all the countries around the world at the moment, particularly if you're in America between the Democrats and the Republicans, uh, in Britain between conservatives and Labour, in France between the different elements, Turkey's got its own problems, Russia's yeah. got its own problems. Trust is at a real low level, and we do need people who will follow their own true north, but in yeah. a way with humility and to admit when they're wrong. But anyway, let's go for the next one round, which is PQ, which is what gives your life meaning and purpose, your vocation, your calling, your dharma, as the people in India would say. Yeah. What, what, what have you done to, to, to be, as it were, on purpose, your life purpose, yeah. and, and to to follow a life purpose mixed in with those values that you have. So you have a purposeful life, like the coffee and the ideas you've got at the moment, rather than be off purpose where any, anything goes really. Yeah. So yeah, great question. I definitely like to relate that. Easily, I can relate that is to do with my faith. So for mm -hmm. example, um, what is just, your, what is your faith? So I'm faith. I'm a, I'm a Muslim. Good. Yeah. Yeah. So Relating to that, um, there's an aspect of, of two types of essential relationships. The first relationship, obviously, between you and God. So looking at what he has asked you to do on this planet. But secondly, which is often forgotten, is your relation between everybody, humanity. And it relates back to my concept of, you talked about coffee and 100 Ideas Cafe, it relates to the concept of being of serv servitude to everybody around you. So, you know, when I had my cafe, I just wanted to serve the best coffee to everybody. I wanted everybody that came into my cafe to say oh wow that's a great that was a really good cup of coffee or that was a fantastic piece of cake that i had and just seeing that joy in other people's faces was like was enough i didn't have to have the joy myself but just saying that you've tried your best to do something i said that so that concept of servitude is what kind of aligns with what i'm trying to do on this planet like being human and it goes back to also the four things i always talk about in terms of virtues in terms of honesty integrity chastity and courage 
um, you know, the other ones are a little bit obvious, but chastity relates to just doing things like, you know, with a pure heart, like doing things properly. So if you're going to bang a nail into a wall, use a proper hammer and do it properly. If you make a dent, own up to the dance and correct it. <laughs> oh, that's you know? a great one. Yeah, I love it. I love it. No, perfectly put. Thank you. Uh, you answered that one beautifully. And and I've, I've taken away a lot from that. Let's go around to the next one. Health quotient. So your physical health and your brain health. Brain health is so important these days, which we're yeah. now finding is people with mental health issues. Often it's triggered by what goes on in the microbiome as well. So actually what yeah. we eat affects us. So whether we do have a good cup of coffee, but how good is the um, highly processed um, cake and sugary things that we have? So what are you doing to look after your physical health and your brain health? Give us a couple of tips of things that you found have worked for you. Yeah, so I've always been fascinated by food. Um, I wanted to be a chef. I wanted, um, that's why I'm into coffee. So what I, what I always see food as energy. So if I eat something and it kind of depletes me, I think to myself, this is actually not a good thing. I don't want to. I don't want to replicate that feeling again. Yes, sometimes I will slip. Maybe I'll have a packet of crisps when I know I should not have that. But then I minimize that to like two or three times a year, and I say, okay, was that was that worth me taking that risk? So, for, for example, when I say food relates to energy, is like if you want to have the energy to pursue your goals, to go through life, you want to make sure that you're surrounding yourself mentally and physically with things that actually give you that energy. So yes, I try and work out. Obviously, when I go on holiday, I fill on that. But I try and do a little bit of exercise. When I was in school in England, obviously, going to boarding school, what I love about that is that we, were, we had to exercise, I think, six, six days a week. Mm -hmm. I've tried my best to keep up to that, whether it's doing, I mean, even if it's 10 minutes of exercise a day, either you go for a walk or you do like high-intensity high interval training, for example. Um, I think everything's related. You know, we have the mental, we have the physical, we have the spiritual, we have the um, emotional. I think all that, as, that's all part of us. Mentally, I think one of the things that I've been looking at, and I mentioned to a, a book that I read um, by Robert Glazer called Elevate, where he talks about capacity building, feeding into the physical, the emotional, the mental, and the intellectual as well. Mm. Looking at all this aspect. And in terms of mental, it's talking about things like, you know, looking at how your, your capacity, your brain capacity, whether you're reading about books that actually enhance help you to understand things that are around you and also you also have to understand that yes we can we have some capacity but we don't have all the capacity so part of your mental health is to understand that you're actually not fully in control of everything there's no way you can be fully in control of everything we're even in control of our breathing our breathing is automatic <laughs> so i think crazy. sometimes people put this big burden on ourselves like oh no i need to spend an extra hour doing this no you have to draw different lines in your life if, if something is really important to you like i mentioned once in the call once to someone i said if your family is important to you then you can't stay you can't stay at work till 11 o'clock and miss saying good night to your kids for 10 or 15 years there's going to be a cost later on in life it's, so things you know things like <laughs> things like that yeah well you, you've made lots of uh, triggers for me and connections for me that the, the first one is um the importance of your health and well-being with what i call eat move sleep breathe focus and prosper so, you know, what you eat is very important. And uh, one lovely um, doctor was uh, teaching me once that, you know, love food that loves you back. And I, for example, loved red wine, but alcohol doesn't love me back. So I've actually given up alcohol. Uh, I had one moment when for about a week where I thought I'd sort of 
fit in with everybody else and oh have a glass but actually it's still i didn't sleep very well it raised my heart rate and lowered my heart rate variance and i just didn't feel great on it but everybody pressurizes you to drink alcohol so you feel you ought to not because you want to but because others sort of make you feel like you're strange if you don't because they feel awkward if you don't drink so actually yeah. i found I'm, I'm at ease with that but also particularly foods i find that eating healthy foods love me back and so yeah. it, it 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 builds on you and the other thing is um you're right about high intensity interval training is excellent and i i do it about two or three times a week and on the other days i do yoga um or i do at the moment i've just got into the latest thing my my 60th birthday present from my wife was one of the water rowers and i put it out on the patio with nice views across the rolling countryside here in lincolnshire and I do 10,000 meters rowing, just nice and steady. Zone wow. two, zone two, they call it, which is which is uh, at a certain heart rate, quite a low heart rate, about in my case, 99 beats to 116. I've got to keep in that zone because that's very good for the mitochondria and it's very good for, for weight management and things like that. But I just feel superb, a bit tired, but not too tired when you've been rowing for about 50 minutes. But but there are certain exercises that that I'm learning from the experts now particularly like I used to be a runner and a mountain marathoner most of my life, but, but they're saying it's junk miles. When you get to my age, you really shouldn't be pounding the joints. You could do it on a treadmill, but cross training is better. Rowing is better. There's other things depending on what, which doesn't cause inflammation. So I think, I think what you have is, is the importance of good food uh, and and good activities that reduce your inflammation and help your longevity. Yeah, I think I like I like the point about you mentioned about meditation. Sorry, I think that's really important as well for your mental. Oh. And as you know, everything's connected. So if you, the physical activity sends different chemicals to our body that helps us to relax mentally as well. So everything's kind of in, interconnected. Uh, that's that's the thing. It's like the avatar with the, the big tree. We're all connected more than people ever realize. And and I think your point on spiritual, emotional, intellectual, and physical being the, the four key areas. Let's go on to uh, emotional, emotional intelligence, emotional and social intelligence, what we call EQ. Yeah. If there was a top tip you'd give people, because you're very good with people, it's so easy to build rapport with you from our last conversation and uh, and through one golden nugget. But um, what's the top tip you found about building rapport? There you were in your, in your cafe, you're trying to set all these more cafes, these ideas cafes. How do you, uh, what tip would you give about good emotional intelligence Would people go, oh, that's a good one. I, I will, I will work on practicing that. Well, um, I'm often told by lots of people that I'm a very good listener. So I think sometimes, you know, there's, I'm sure you've heard this, you know, we have two ears and one, <laughs> one mouth. So we should actually use the thing that has two as opposed to one. Uh, what I learned from, you know, even in my cafe, what I loved about working in my cafe is that every day was never the same. Meeting different, different people, listening to them, talking about the, all kind of different things. So my top tip, my top tip will be like, you know, just listening to people um, and just being a bit, being a bit patient to understand where they're coming from. Because there's so many times I've got it wrong, where I've seen someone. I, I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna confess, and you know, you, you tend this, this tendency to, you know, form a particular opinion about them. And I love when I'm so wrong about it, because like, actually. I learned something from this person or that person was completely different, a completely different trajectory. So sometimes I've just learned that lesson to just keep quiet and just listen. Oh, you, you've really triggered in me. Um, uh, I mean, I, time and again, it, it's working. Pro- I probably go to my grave doing this. I think when you've had a, a, a tough childhood or whatever's happened in your early life, 
uh, it tends to make you quite um, protective uh, and you're quite self-critical and it also makes you critical of others and quite judgmental. Uh, and, and it's work in progress for me, massive work in progress about less being less judgmental about other people and non-attached. I think non-attachment is, is, is so important to the outcomes. I can only control my thoughts and my actions. I can't control your thoughts and your, I can influence you, but really you're going to do what you're going to do. I can't control the world events. I, I can't control uh, the, the cost of living crisis and the level of inflation, yeah. but I, I can control how I, how I take command of my own feelings and my own emotions and what I do about it. So I, I, that's the bit I can. Um, and, and I think you, you've really hit on something quite profound. I don't know what, what thoughts come up for you after I share that. No, I think, I know you summarized, summarized it quite well, because I think we have this human tendency where, you know, that's, that's why I always advocate for the concept of virtues as opposed to values, because what's valuable to me might not be valuable to you. But we tend to have this tendency where we think, well, that's more valuable to me. So if it's more valuable to me, then I am more correct than you are. You know, going back to what I mentioned earlier about globalization, where we think that our way is always the best way, it comes and it comes all the way down to the individual level. So, you know, where you, you're trying to elevate yourself and you think, okay, well, I know that person, that person's going to do this. And they do something completely different and they blow your mind away. And I think part of humility is saying, okay, I'm, I'm happy I was actually wrong about that person. And maybe I should learn a lesson yeah. not to part of other people. I always uh, look for the best in them first. Yeah, than, yeah. yeah. So, so good. And, and what someone said to me the other day, um, always think of them as the hero. So, so someone drives past you at speed and cuts you up on the road. You, you, you know, bang, you know, oh my God. And instead of that, why not think they're the hero? Do you know what? They're on the way to hospital to go and save the life of someone who's had a cardiac arrest. They're a doctor. How, how yeah. do I not know? So, so try and give them the benefit of the doubt. You may be yeah. utterly wrong, but to be so judgmental about other people you see for, or you make a first impression, you meet someone and you go, oh, they're like this or they're like yeah. that. And time and again, you're always wrong. Yes. So, how dare we make such a quick judgment? You know, walk a mile in their shoes and then make a judgment about them. But then why make a judgment at all? Just as you say, exactly. in your cafes, learning from these different people. Brilliant. Yeah. Which, which with your cafes and your experience would and your travel to South Africa and, and being brought up in Nigeria and then living in London. And now here you are in, in Dubai and you've been to many other countries. Cultural intelligence quotient, CQ. You know, this this importance of the collectivism, this we are all connected, the diversity, right. the equality, the inclusion, understanding people who are different from us right. and 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 being less polarized as, as the populism has made people very polarized. They're right. We're right. You're wrong. And yeah. like, like, what if you're both right, but in different ways? Oh, well, no, there's, it can only be one. It's black or white. It's binary. But actually, life's never like that. It's shades of gray. So, yeah. so what's your tip about cultural intelligence quotient and getting on better with people who are very different from us and things like that? I think also, um, you know, it goes back to the concept of listening, but I think also, you know, most people tend to want to talk rather than listen, but you, you can take that, you can make that into your own advantage. For instance, if you meet someone from a different culture, you can always say to them, oh, explain to me how your culture does this. What are your wedding ceremonies, your food ceremonies, and they will be more than happy to explain because in some cultures, they don't actually have the opportunity to speak that much. So I think that concept of encouraging people to speak about 
their experience, speak about their culture. And that's why I love when I went for the UN, just traveling to different parts of the world, understanding how they eat, what they eat at a particular time. For example, you know, we can eat couscous every day, but in Morocco, even in the top, I was there in May, even in the top restaurant in Marrakesh, they only serve couscous on Fridays because that's the tradition. So you can go there on Tuesday and say, well, I'm in Morocco, I want couscous. They'll be like, oh, sorry, sir. We only do it on Friday. You can get upset and say to them, why, but I flew 10,000 miles and I want couscous today. You're like, we, we, we do it on Friday. That's great. Couscous, couscous Fridays. Well, the next one round is resilience. Uh, and you've talked about resilience already and, and uh, yeah. many experiences you've had, particularly uh, being down to the last $50 and, and being utterly broke. And then how do you make it through? And what does God and the world and the universe teach you about, you know, you need to be a bit more humble, my son. Uh, let me <laughs> let me give you an experience which will yes. make you rather humble. And I, yeah. I, I was taught by a friend of mine, Roger Steer, the three hums, humility, humanity, and a bit of humor. And we do need humor at times. We we can't, I know it's work in progress for me. I've always taken myself so seriously. And of course, no one else does, but I'm taking myself so seriously. And of course, you have to laugh at yourself because actually it's not that important you know there's always that yeah. analogy we had when i was an army officer like has anybody died no so like <laughs> let's put this in proportion is it really that important how important exactly. will it be in 10 weeks time in 10 months time in 10 years time and in 10 years you won't even remember what you're getting all agitated about um exactly so resilience resilience what's, what's your top tip on uh, a good tip for people on resilience that's that's helped you um, I think, you know, we touched a little bit about on that, I give the example of when I was in the cafe, but just, you know, having that trust, that thing will work out. But I think also knowing what you mentioned earlier on about knowing what you're in control of and what you're not in control of. Sometimes we think we're in control of everything, but we're not. So my, my take on resilience is like, you know, if you get an elastic band and you pull it, it, it stretches so far but then you know what your limit is. If you try and keep on pulling it, it will snap eventually. So I think also knowing what you are capable of doing and what you're not capable of doing. You can't become, you can't be the CEO and the PA and the CFO at the same time. It's impossible. That's why they have different roles. So try and focus on what you do best. And, once, and, and if you don't have skill sets for certain things, try and involve others because they might be able to help you. So that's my experience in terms of in a business set, in terms of resilience, just focusing on knowing yourself. But I think that's one of the challenges people don't actually know themselves or trust mm. themselves. Mm. Spend a bit of time. I think that's why meditation you mentioned earlier on is really important. People don't, if you tell sometimes people just sit down for five to 10 minutes in quiet and just think about yourself or the world, they find that very difficult to do. Five to 10 minutes in a 24 hour day is actually not that much. Mm. I think just understanding about who you are, what your limits are, what you can do, what you can't do. I think that also helps. And that, that helps to ground you as well. And I think so you don't take on too much and bog your mind down with stress and things like that. I, I'm so with you. And in fact, I, I've got into since the pandemic and working from home now rather than going out to London every day and things like that. Uh, it's actually in many ways been a godsend to, to me that, that things have been so difficult and quite tough for me at the time but but now i've made my work fit my lifestyle so actually yeah. i get up and, and actually before 10 i'm not doing any work because i'm up at 7 30 and there's a variety of different activities which involve mindfulness for 10 minutes so meditating for 10 minutes 
um, might be some supplements and, and some healthy uh, a cup of coffee before before I break my a 16-hour fast yeah. um, every day, 16 hours of fasting, eight hours of eating. Um, wow. Then then some exercise during my fast, um, and then walking the dog with my wife, and 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 then I start work, and I might work till <laughs> six or seven or eight in the evening, but have breaks for lunch and yeah. have a power nap for 30 minutes. So so actually, you can build a really healthy life. So so your work fits around. Yeah, a healthy lifestyle. But many go, oh, I'm out of control. I, I can't because I'm working in this job and I have to travel the world. Well, you chose to, you know, you, you, exactly. you have a choice. No, I have no choice. I have to do this. It's it's the only thing I can do. Well, it's a bit like you being told, I know you're really good at art and I know you're you're, you're really creative, but rather than being a pilot or, or doing designer fashion, why don't we send you to become an economist? Now, you've been successful, but what would have it been like? What would the journey have been like if you had done the art, if you had become part? Who knows? Yeah, exactly. Ladies and gentlemen, Definitely. we are flying at 40,000 feet. Welcome. This is your <laughs> captain speaking. Um, <laughs> back to brand. Back to brand. The next one. Um, the penultimate one. Then legacy. Um, brand is, you know, reputation, image, impact. Uh, you've got a great brand. You, you, I, I do think you present yourself in a lovely way that people are warm to you and the ideas and, and congratulations Thanks. on that. Well done. Um, uh, which is why when Stephen mentioned you as a possible guest, I went, yeah, I just, just love everything, the, the way you, you show up. Um, what have you done to learn by 360 feedback or feedback from other people uh, of, of ways that you can continue to improve as a, as a leader and as a human? Yeah. I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll start off with, you know, like when I, when I was working. So one of the, like I call it criticism of my former bosses was that, yeah, Lamine, um, he's, he's worked really hard, but we feel that he's got a little bit in reserve that he can, you know, he's probably given like 80%, 90%. He could probably give another 10%. So that was a very common, like, you know, um, criticism of my career, except in one year in 2018, where I probably worked flat out. And I said to myself, I can't do that again. <laughs> I was mentally, physically, spiritually exhausted. And it got me thinking to the concept of time. And I, at the beginning of 2019, I watched this famous video between um, Warren Buffett and Bill Gates, where Bill Gates basically has a calendar. He fills his calendar up every hour. And it asked Warren Buffett, what's your calendar like? And he goes, I just, I have one hour meeting the day. He goes, what do you mean? Gets into the office for the first hour. He calls all his CEOs and managers and says, is everything okay? And after that, he puts the phone down and doesn't talk to anybody again. And it asked his peer, is that true? And he said, yes. And he said, why? And Warren Buffett said, well, I'm so rich, I can buy anything that I want, but one thing I can't buy is time. <laughs> and I thought to myself, wow, I don't want to sell my time off, <laughs> you know, 24 hours. And that's why I always get turned up by all these gurus that say, oh, you got to do 80 or 100 hours a week. I'm like, who loves doing 100 hours a week? That's that's punishment. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So in terms of my my in terms of my brand, what I try and advocate. Sometimes people say, "Yeah, I'm, I put a, I put a bit of grit in." Sometimes a little bit relaxed. I think it's the concept of working smartly. I like the concept where Michael Neal. He's got a book called Super Coach. He talks about um, success without mental struggle. So it's effortless success where you're doing things and you're actually just flowing with the success. Yeah, sometimes you've got to go up to into the fourth or the fifth gear where you say, okay, 
today I'm going to work at a particular time. You know your skills. Like, for example, I know the particular hours of the day that I can just put my head down and just get on with it. But I know it's three or four hours in the day. Other times of the day, I want to be a bit more relaxed, maybe have, have more phone calls with people, talk to them. And I think the idea is understanding in terms of your brand thoughts and saying, okay, this is my brand. I will get the job done, but I'm going to get it done in the way that I know that I do it the most effectively, most effective way. It's not going to be working 100 hours a week. I can probably do it in 20 hours a week just if I have a focused mind. And also racing back to the concept where you talked about the brand. You know, I always say that I'm trying to live my childhood. What I mean by that is that I always love the concept of art, trying to help people and love food. So we fast forward to 100 Ideas Cafe. Yes, people are saying, is it a cafe? I say, it's not a cafe yet, but I do want to have a physical space where people can come, share ideas to change the world and also have a great cup of coffee. So those are, those are my passions and I'm trying to make that into one brand rather than having 100 brands saying, okay, this is who Lemin is about. Even if on my LinkedIn, it says Noble Peace Bride, Coffeepreneur. I remember someone said to me, I love that you have Coffeepreneur because it sounds like you're passionate about other things. I said, yes, I want everybody to know who I am. I'm not trying to hide anything. At this age, I'm not trying to hide anything. I want to say, this is Lamine. This is you you're going to get. I love food. I love helping people. And I love thinking about how we can make the future better for humanity. That's uh, beautifully put. Well, look, the, um, the the last one we'll look at is your legacy, uh, the stewardship, looking after things, making them better than you found them. Then we'll talk about teams, and then we'll talk about your favorite books and the two-minute top tip. So legacy, uh, what would you um, like people to say about you when you have died, uh, both in your work and in your life, in in a nutshell? Well, I like to think that, that whenever I have met with them, that I kind of inspired them in a way to be better. And I kind of brought a bit of joy into their life. So that's mm -hmm. what I would like people to summarize. Oh, they say, oh yeah, Lamin was like this. I really like working with him. Or he was a great dad or great husband or great son, great brother. <laughs> um, I think just, you know, trying to be leak people off, better off as best as you can, at least having that consciousness in your brain that you're trying to do that. Hmm, I like that. Okay. And then um, you've, you've worked with a number of teams. I mean, when there's 2,000 of you over at the IAEA, um, that's a lot of different people working in different ways. When, when you've yeah. been in an organization where it's gone a bit toxic, a particular team, because of a, one person's behavior or whatever it might be, the, the, the rotten apple in the basket making other fruit go off, yeah. um, what have you done to try and turn it around? Or what have you seen done to try and turn it around and make it into a high-performing team again? What, what action did those people take to sort it out? Yeah, I think, I think sometimes with toxic people, you, the most important thing is to actually understand them. So before I actually left the IEA, I actually wrote a, 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 a document, well, I won't call it a document, like a one-pager, Rules for Surviving in a Bureaucratic Environment. And I send that to my colleagues Basically, in those rules, I said, you have to understand what you can do, what you can't do, especially when you work in a governmental organization. There are going to be people, sadly, that have their own personal agendas. The most important is to understand them, what motivates them, but never give up on where, why you took that job in the first place. I used to call this my squash technique. What I meant by that is that when I was at university, I taught one of my best friends actually how to play squash. And one day he beat me and he was so joyous that he actually finally beat me. And I said, well... I was playing squash with you because I wanted to enjoy the game, but I didn't know your motivation was actually to beat me. So the next match, what, he, what I did is I actually played like a beginner. He was very frustrated and I actually beat him. Now, 
in the workplace, what I call squash technique is that if you have a goal, let's say you, take the, you, you, you took that job to have an impact on people, never give up on that goal. There will be toxic people around you. Just give them bite-sized information, but always make sure you keep your eye on the ball. And that's what I did at the IAEA. I have to say this. So I said, okay, this is what I'm here to serve member states, I, the countries that have signed up for to be part of this organization. What do they want? What do they want me to do for them? And I said, okay, I will deliver this for you. We had toxic people that were saying, oh, no, that's not good for them. We shouldn't do that. I was like, okay, fine. I didn't say anything. I just didn't, I didn't offer an opinion. But I wanted to make sure that when I left the organization, that I created teams and I delivered on that promise to the people. And I knew that I could leave with a clean heart and a clean conscience. Because if you don't have a clean heart and a clean conscience, that's going to haunt you forever. Mm-hmm. So make sure you don't compromise on that. We're going back to the concept of values. Because some, some, certain things you can compromise on. You can compromise on eating perhaps a bag of crisps or eating McDonald's today. Maybe it might take for someone like me, it probably take me a week to get over that. But you can't compromise on certain values because that's going to take a lifetime. So that's, and that's going to be with you to your grave. So don't yeah. compromise on certain things like that. I don't know if yeah. that addresses it, your question. It, it does. And it's beautiful. Don't compromise on your values. Um, thank you. I'm just writing that down. Um, so last two questions. Um, I, I you've mentioned two books, Elevate and yeah. Supercoach by Michael Neal. Yeah. Um, why would anybody listen to, to or read those books? What, what, what is it that are so good about them that you recommend? Yeah, I mean, I wanted, I wanted to add another book yeah. by John, John Adair. Oh, yeah, John Adair. The, yeah, one of the UK's management groups. I've met, I've met John Adair. I met him. Oh, really? Oh, great. Winter, Winter <laughs> Castle, yeah. He's a lovely guy. Yeah, he wrote a book on on leadership. We actually used the, the Prophet Muhammad as, a, as an example. He talked about the origins of the word leadership, which comes from two words, from two languages, Arabic, as in it, someone that holds a rope, and also from English in terms of someone that's on a ship and also um, basically it relates to a journey, basically. So what I loved about that book, it talks about the origin of the word leadership and how it relates to the concept of servitude. Now, if you look at even the government, it says civil servants. The highest paid civil servant is the prime minister. It means you are put in that place to serve the people. And I love that concept of leadership because sometimes leaders think that everybody should serve them. No, you're serving the people. The people voted for you to deliver on your promise to serve them and to make their lives better. So that's what I really loved about that book. And I, mm. I often read that book almost on an annual basis just to understand the concept of being of servitude. Now, in Elevate, that book um, by Robert Glazer, what I liked about it was the concept of looking at our spiritual, our physical, our intellectual, and emotional, looking at the four concepts. And it gives you really practical advice um, on all those aspects, like how you can, little, you know, he goes like from small, medium to long-term goals. You know, if you're, if you're looking at physical, maybe the long-term goal might be to run a marathon, for example, but small goal might just be just walking for like 30 minutes a day to start off with. Um, you know, mentally, maybe reading some books that actually help you relax or do meditation, even if it's sort of tight five or 10 minutes, getting an app like Calm, for example, just starting off bite size. You can sit on the underground, close your eyes for 10 minutes. It at least helps you to relax a little bit. These are really practical examples. And the third book was, um, I've got about four, four books, but the third book I mentioned was the Super Code with Michael Neal. And what I love is what 10 lessons where he basically coaches you about not, not living about your thought, that your thought is not something you always have to act on. Your thought is just a thought. 
and it talks about all the way. He talks about even financial security. People get bogged down about, oh, I need money for this. He goes, no, you don't actually need money. Money is basically something, it's a, it's a form of energy. If you want to do something, yeah, go out and do something about it. But don't, don't, make, yourself, don't make yourself a slave to money. And he talks about how to think, how to set goals. Um, and I love that book. And of course, the book, which is the classic for me, which really had a big impact on my life in 2020, is a classical book, um, Think and Grow Rich by Napoleon Hill. Um, I, when I, I, I heard a lot about that book. When I read that book, I thought this book is it's about personal development. And it actually says in the book that people don't buy books because of what's in them, they buy titles. So I think a lot of people bought Think and Grow Rich, but it's thinking about how to think about how to be a better person. And it has this 13 um, criteria for actually becoming a better person. I think most self-help books, basically, that's the main textbook, Think and Grow Rich, because it covers so many things where it's to do with subconscious thinking, where it's to do with faith, desire, perseverance, um, working in a group of like-minded people. So, so basically you can't, success is not something that's individual. You need to work with a group of people to move ahead. It talks about lots of different things. And that was a really big impact on my life. Yeah, yeah and, and I can tell, thank you for that. that there's a real <laughs> richness in all three books, which I will, uh, in, in Thinking Grow Rich, I will listen to it again. I've, I've read it a couple of times, but I'll go back to that. And Supercoach, I'll get, and Elevate, I'll get as well. Thank you for that. Um, I think Elevate links with a book I've got here on my shelf, You Can Change Your Life with the Hoffman Process by Tim Lawrence. And I don't know if you come across the Hoffman Process, but I'm about to go and experience a seven-day fully immersive uh, course oh, wow. with them. <laughs> Look it up, the Hoffman Institute around the world. Um, I hope, you, I hope you'll give a, you will give a report or... I will. I will. I'll, I'll, I'm, digging, I'm digging in December, so it'll be a while yet until I, I do okay. it. I'm preparing for it. So um, would you kindly introduce yourself again, just for this two minute tip? Um, introduce yourself, say what you do and give us a two minute top tip about leadership. Thank you. Yeah. Lamine Abdelmalik, Nobel Peace Prize laureate, founder of 100 Ideas Cafe, a crowdsourcing platform that wants to impact a billion people by 2032. Coffeepreneur, because I love coffee and futurist. My leadership tip is that I really believe that everybody is a leader. What I mean by that is that you are responsible for leading your own life. So take, take precautions or take action to understand who you are, what really motivates you, what inspires you. And by that way, you will actually get in contact with your purpose in life. Your purpose in life is already within you. People always say, find your purpose, but actually it's just finding it within yourself. And what I mean by lead by honesty, I mean that deep down, I really believe that everybody really knows what their purpose is, is whether you're ready to confront it. And I strongly encourage you to confront it because when you start that path, that purpose-living purpose -living life, you will find people who actually come onto your path and help you. And for example, being on this podcast, Jonathan, not tell me to say this, this is actually full evidence of living with purpose, coming to people with like with Jonathan and other people that have led me to this path. I couldn't have, I couldn't have painted this picture. <laughs> Thank you very much indeed, Lamina. That that is it's like having the most beautiful meal with a wonderful cup of coffee. There's a real richness in it, the aroma and the taste and the goodness for us. You've you've shared a lot and, and I do love the way that your faith comes through you. Uh, in the way that you you treat other people and the way you speak authentically. So thank you for being on Thanks the Inspiring Leadership Podcast. Have a good My day. Pleasure. Thanks, Thanks a lot, Robert. Take care.